Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today my guest is Dr. Albert Mensa. Dr. Mensa is the founder of Mensa Medical, an international biomedical clinic for patients diagnosed with autism, ADD, ADHD, OCD, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. Dr. Mensa treats both pediatric and adult patients with targeted advanced nutrient therapy, an effective and natural alternative to prescription medication. Dr. Mensa regularly speaks at conferences and works closely with the Walsh Research Institute, updating therapies and protocols, initiating new cutting-edge paradigms, and serving as a clinical instructor for the Walsh Research Institute's International Doctor Training Program. Dr. Mensa's treatment protocols are based on over 30 years of research in the field of orthomolecular medicine. As a physician in this specialized field since 2005, he has treated over 3,000 patients with advanced targeted nutrient therapy. Dr. Mensa received his undergraduate degree from Northwestern University and his medical degree from Finch University of Health Sciences Chicago Medical School. Dr. Mensa's residency was in family medicine at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago. Following his residency, he completed additional fellowship training in academic development at the JHS Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And now for the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. So today is actually going to be part one of a three-part series with Dr. Mensa on methylation. So in this series, we focus primarily, but not solely, on undermethylation from a mental health perspective, right? So we get into what methylation is, how to determine if someone is an over or undermethylator, and we also get into some treatment options should you be an undermethylator from a nutraceutical standpoint, as well as from a pharmaceutical perspective. And we also discuss how to determine all of this based on the variety of lab testing that's ultimately needed. Now, this episode does get pretty technical, but ultimately, I think you'll find there'd be a lot of simple and actionable takeaways from this series with Dr. Mensa. Now, if you like what you hear on today's episode and want to support the podcast, please take a moment to leave a five-star review. If you want to be notified when new episodes are live and want to further support me, just hit the plus sign at the top right of your screen to follow the show. Well, I really hope you guys enjoy the show. And without further delay, I present to you Dr. Albert Mensa. Dr. Mensa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dove. Yeah, so I've been following your work for a while now, so I'm super excited about picking your brain today. And um, I wanted to actually jump right in and talk about your unique approach to kind of treating mental health. And I also wanted to mention to the listeners that you ran some labs on me, and while you know, almost all the markers came back optimal. One marker, however, did not. And that was the whole blood histamine marker, which actually came back very high. So I thought we could maybe start off with you sharing with the listeners what the implications are to this lab finding, particularly in the context of mental health and methylation. But first, perhaps you could just start by giving a quick overview of really what methylation is, and then we can kind of go from there. Okay. Well, the, the way uh, we look at methylation is that to put it kind of simply, methyl molecules are kind of like fuses in a fuse box. Okay? They allow you to turn different systems on in the house that is you. And the difference, though, is that your house requires turning things on, activation, and turning things off, deactivation, sometimes a few million times 
within a span of a second. Okay. Mm. That's almost incomprehensible for us. But the fact is we have to regulate our system millions of times a second in every system that we have. Otherwise we break down. Now you need methyl molecules that act like keys or fuses to actually regulate these systems. So it's hard to turn anything on without methyl and it's hard to turn anything off without methyl. So having the right balance, normal levels of methyl is actually very important. If you have too few methyl molecules, your system cannot operate optimally. Hmm. If you have way too many methyl molecules, it can be like you're on hyperdrive, okay? Or extremely erratic for other reasons. So methyl is really the key to activating, deactivating enzymes, hormones, neurotransmitters, um, even your DNA has got to be regulated, okay? And it is methyl molecules that are very, very significantly involved in this regulation process. Many people will talk about neurotransmitters, for example, they do neurotransmitter testing stuff, and they say, well, I've got lots and lots of serotonin, but I still feel crappy. Well, the thing is, you can have lots and lots of cars in a parking lot, but if you have no keys for the car, the car goes nowhere. Mm. Okay. So every neurotransmitter you have in your body has got to be activated. It's got to be turned on. It doesn't come already active. Okay. Mm. It has to be activated. And then when it's done its job, it has to be deactivated. Part of the difficulty with many people with, with mental health challenges is that that regulation process isn't there when you're under methylated. You don't have enough of these methyl molecules to, hey, you know what, turn off that norepinephrine, which can now lead to anxiety, which can now lead mm. to over the longer term, depression, which can now lead to fear, panic. All sorts of things can happen if you don't turn stuff off. So just as gotcha. important as it is to turn things on, Dove, you've got to be able to turn things off. And that's where methyl comes into play. Gotcha. So when you say turn on and off from a more technical perspective, are you referring to not so much the pool of, let's say in this case, serotonin, but more the reuptake of serotonin in those individuals who, let's say, are under methylators? Because with if reuptake is, let's say, exaggerated and there isn't an ability to sort of softly block that reuptake so that serotonin stays in the synapse, then they're going to have symptoms, presumably, of what is considered conventionally, quote, low serotonin, when in reality, the serotonin can't bind to the receptor. Is that sort of what you mean by the analogy of turning the key on and off? Well, it, it's all the above. Okay? Mm. In order for serotonin to work, period, it has to be activated. Right. The receptor is a whole nother step. Okay. But I mean literally when it is there in the cleft in between nerve cells. Right, right. It's got to be turned on and it has to be turned off, okay? So it's kind of like you use something um, and then you throw it in the garbage, right? Then it's in the garbage, it's inactive. Mm -hmm. But you don't leave the garbage in your house. You take it outside so that a garbage man or person can come and take that garbage and take it for recycling. Mm-hmm. That aspect is what happens when you have reuptake, 
with regard to receptors. Okay, that's the reuptake process that you're talking about. It's already done and dead, but it has to be now taken back up so that it can be reprocessed and reused for whatever have you. Okay, so gotcha. there's there's pieces in there between production, activation of a neurotransmitter, and then deactivation, and then reuptake, and then reprocessing. And each one of those steps has got to be regulated. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. So if we can, let's maybe jump into talking about the whole blood histamine marker. So mine came back very high. So maybe we could sort of unpack the implications of high whole blood histamine in, in the general population and specifically me in this case. Well, um, people who have high histamine are actually uh, very highly productive individuals uh, for the most part. They mm -hmm. tend to be very driven individuals, uh, very bright individuals. They like to dot the I's, cross the T's. They're usually perf perfectionistic. They um, are, are very much engaged oftentimes in this pursuit of excellence. It's, it's kind of hard to slow them down into relaxation. It's um, every, everything from childhood kind of programs them to push, push, push for more and more and more perfection. So they tend to get very good grades. They tend to do well at high school, uh, go to university. They're oftentimes professionals, um, doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, teachers, educators, um, high-profile salespeople, okay? Very driven folks. These are the people who are typically under-methylated. Mm -hmm. And the way I like for individuals to understand this is, you know, your drive button, you need so many drive buttons to keep you going. But at the same time, you need to have enough drive buttons to turn you off. So with under-methylated people or high histamine people, they don't have enough of those drive buttons to be turned off, rather the buttons to turn off the drive. So mm -hmm. they're constantly up, drive, drive, drive. So the characteristics of a high histamine person, usually very, very excessively driven, hard for them to relax, perfectionistic, like to be in control, dot the I's, cross the T's kind of, kind of people. Um, usually very successful in many different ways. Um, but at the same time, that same, that same element that gives them the capacity to do well and to excel can also, pre can also predispose them to having severe depression, to having OCD tendencies, to have ADHD, poor focus and attention. Um, I know that sounds kind of weird to be a perfectionist, but you can't focus very well. This is kind of the spectrum that you see with undermethylation. So there are many great attributes for undermethylators. In fact, undermethylators organize the world for us. Okay? If somebody's coming up with an algorithm to do something, um, or a plan, or a direction, or a set of rules, it's usually an undermethylated person. Okay? Yeah, it makes so sense. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of great things happen because of undermethylation. But okay. at the same time, there can be a lot of problems that can happen with undermethylation as well. Okay. So when you say an undermethylator can't sort of turn it off, is that as a result of perhaps an overactivation of norepinephrine and perhaps dopamine, while there might be uh, an underactivation of serotonin, or am I off base with that? It, it's not quite so specific. Um, as a matter of fact, the whole point is that with undermethylation, the entire system 
the entire system from DNA moving to neurotransmitters, moving to uh, everything else, the entire system is underserved. Mm, okay. Okay. So, okay. Cognitively means- speaking, whatever is happening up here in the brain, it keeps on going and is not properly modulated. Okay. Okay. So, so with histamine, just for the listeners who may not know, so histamine in and of itself doesn't directly have to do with methylation per se, but it's really right. It's sort of like a proxy for methyl status because from what I understand, in order to excrete histamine, one needs enough methyl to actually excrete it. So obviously if you have low methyl, you're going to have an increase of that whole blood histamine in the blood. Is that more or less, is that essentially um, how that works? Yeah, I, I like people to think about a teeter-totter. Yeah. So back in the days when I was on the playground, kids actually played on the playground, and you yeah. said on the teeter-totter, um, there's a relationship between the methyl and the histamine. Mm-hmm. So when one is high in the teeter-totter, the other one is low. And so in terms of testing, we know that that relationship exists in both directions. When methyl is high, histamine is low. So we know that low histamine people are over-methylated, okay? So I always like the teeter-totter analogy because it makes it pretty simple to remember. But yes, methyl technically, scientifically, lowers histamine. And Mm -hmm. histamine technically will lower methyl. So whichever one with the greater concentration affects the other accordingly. Okay. So how would you approach, if you saw someone with very high levels of histamine, what would be your starting off point for a nutraceutical treatment plan or even perhaps a pharmaceutical treatment plan if that was something that the individual who was, let's say, having depressive symptoms would be open to? Like, how, how do you go about approaching that first step? Well, there's always evaluation. So testing is always the first step in these processes. Well, actually, that's not true. First, a a good conversation about what's going on with that person, what kind of challenges they're experiencing. Um, Is it anxiety, depression? Is it OCD-type behaviors? Mm. Is it everything from um, anorexia or even body dysmorphic disorders? Mm -hmm. Um, Finding out what the issue is is always first and foremost. Then doing a very significant history, not just personal history, but family history becomes very, very important. Many people don't realize your methylation status is not yours. It comes from your lineages that came before you. This is as much a genetic and epigenetic phenomenon as it is simply biochemical. So looking at family characteristics that go back even several generations can be very key in determining the likelihood that somebody is indeed an undermethylated person, even before a single test has been done. Even before a single test has been done. So then we get to the testing process. Okay. And we standardly use the whole blood histamine test um, as a good reflective marker for methylation. Um, and now once we have those results, well, if you're deficient in, in methyl or if there's an imbalance, then we seek to direct and correct that imbalance for that particular person in whatever way works best for them biochemically. Okay, that makes sense. So in terms of histamine levels, are there things that could possibly skew those results? For example, those histamine levels are 
pretty impacted by an enzyme that breaks down histamine. So if somebody has, let's say, a genetic abnormality, a genetic polymorphism that hinders their ability significantly, let's say they're homozygous for, let's say, histamine methyltransferase that helps to break down histamine significantly. If they have that impaired ability, would that then sort of render the whole blood histamine marker like a poor correlate in those particular individuals and like other testing would then have to be done? That's an excellent question. And the answer is not really. Um, we have four different histamine types and receptors throughout the entire body. And the one of the brain is the one that's not really affected by those types of, of elements. That's the neurotransmitter histamine that we're, that we're referring to, not the, the body histamine. Mm-hmm. So like people have mast cell issues and they can't break down histamine in the GI tract. Like um, seasonal allergies and so forth. You're, correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So now, you're right in that there is relationship between these different histamines. Mm-hmm. And so it can be a decrease, but usually you don't see a significant challenge with the neurotransmitter histamine of the brain. And that's the one that we're really after the one we're looking at. So and okay. those polymorphisms are not very common. So for the most part, histamine is a very, very good test overall. Okay. So, you know, I'm very familiar with your work and your lineage that you come from with uh, Dr. William Walsh and so forth. And I know you've spoken about with those who are under methylators that things like amino acids like methionine and SAMe tend to do well with those individuals, as well as in some cases for those who are open to it or in dire need in an immediate sense, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now, with that said, Let's say someone were to embark on a, a fully comprehensive uh, nutraceutical protocol for their undermethylation and their high whole blood histamine. Can that level of histamine, if it's, let's say, sky high, could you then use it ongoing as a proxy to see if the protocol is working to see if the whole blood histamine comes down? Or is it sort of just like genetically determined and that number is just not going to budge? Correct. It's the latter. Um, that is a marker. It's a marker for methylation. It's not a number to be followed to see how methylation is doing. Um, there's another test called the methylation profile that can actually tell you how methylation is actually doing within that individual system. But the whole blood history itself is just a marker. So we don't actually follow, we don't look for it to come down. Uh-huh. It pretty much stays within a range that just says high. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, no. that, that that makes sense. Is the other test that you're referring to the SAM to SAW ratio uh, test? Yeah. Okay. So maybe if you could give us a little bit of a an explanation as to what SAM or SAMe is also in the supplement world called SAMe is, and really why do these undermethylators respond so well to SAMe? Well, many do, some don't, for a variety of reasons. Um, okay, but technically speaking. That individual, um, SAMe is the methylating agent in the body. So when you're looking at the cycle of methylation, it is that mm. which actually contributes the methyl that does the methylating. Okay. Up until that point in time, it's a series of reactions, each leading to a, another element or agent that ultimately leads to the development of SAMe. And then SAMe does the methylation. So in other words, it's cutting out the middleman. That's the end product. Okay, that's the, the key methylator. So that's why 
many people do well on SAMe, but there are people who don't. Okay, and some of those folks are um, individuals for whom the SAMe may be too strong or too powerful for them, mm-hmm. and they need a lesser powerful agent that will gradually convert. Um, and and so you know we also have to be cautious. Now, many of the products out there that contain SAMe also contain anti-methylating agents and people don't realize that and so they say well i took sammy and i felt worse not better well if you have folic acid in the same product as sammy you're going to feel at best nothing happening Mm, okay at the level of dna at the level of the nucleus of the cell folic acid is a demethylating agent outside the nucleus of the cell it's a methylating agent but inside the nucleus, where we need activity, we need change, it's a demethylating agent. So some brands of SAMe, um, some brands actually have SAMe on the label, but when you read the actual print, it shows that there's both SAMe and folic acid in there. Yeah. So that could yeah. Be a reason that's respond. very, yeah, they, no, that's very accurate. And so it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up folic acid and folate as a whole because. I think a lot of practitioners, I would say most practitioners, wrongly assume that if someone is an undermethylator or if they simply just have this MTHFR enzyme that is widely known about at this point, that they just sort of generically give folate to these individuals without any consideration for the other potential collateral damage or all because maybe they may have, let's say, high homocysteine. So they just want to lower it and they sort of focus myopically on just lowering the homocysteine without, as you said, the potential downsides for these under methylated people. So I wanted to ask you, now I've heard some practitioners speak about folate as a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer, meaning it actually, well, actually, be, before we go any further, I, I shouldn't take for granted that there might be some listeners who don't know what an SSRI is. So maybe let's actually just stop right there. And if you could kind of give the elevator pitch as to what an SSRI is, and then we could kind of take a deep dive about the nutraceuticals that have a similar effect. Is that cool? Sure. Um, so when we're, we're, the whole idea is that in the mental health world, the psychiatric world, the world of psychology, whatever have you, that it's serotonin and changes in serotonin as a chemical that lead to mental health challenges like depression and anxiety. Okay, So if that's the whole point, if it's serotonin, then the idea is, well, how do we manipulate serotonin? So someone came up with the idea of, well, the more serotonin we have, the better we should be doing. So they do realize at a molecular level that serotonin is produced, serotonin is then activated, and then serotonin is destroyed or removed, okay? So somebody came along and said, well, what if we stopped the destruction part of the serotonin? And then we could build up levels of serotonin in a person and they should do better. That was the theoretical idea. So they realized that after the serotonin does its thing, it moves to a different part of the cell where there's what's called a receptor. And that receptor grabs onto the serotonin and kind of takes it away, takes it out of the synapse where the nerves are, 
it takes it back into a different part of the nerve where it can then be reprocessed. Okay? Mm. So if you can block that re reprocessing step, then you're going to increase the amount of serotonin in the system. And then people should be happier. So they developed a series of drugs known as serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors. So these are drugs that inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, okay? which means basically these drugs keep more serotonin out there. But these are not drugs that, that affect um, norepinephrine or dopamine or anything else. These are just for designed for serotonin. That's right. why it's called serotonin specific. Right, right. Yeah. And selective, right, exactly. And selective, yes. Yeah. So gotcha. when when these drugs are in play, they're only affecting serotonin. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the difficulty here is that what they didn't realize was number one, methylation. Okay. It's one thing to have lots of serotonin present, but if it's not activated, it doesn't do you any good. So if you're undermethylated, you generally don't activate or can't continually activate the serotonin that's present. That's why you often see many individuals needing higher and higher dosages of their meds because they feel the medication stopped working. Well, the reason they stopped working is because you're not actually increasing production of mm. the serotonin. You're simply trying to keep what you've got left fully activated and you can't do it because you generally don't have enough methyl to activate it. So, mm. That's the idea behind these serotonin SSRIs, if you want to call yeah. them that. So if I, if I may, so, but generally, it's my understanding that with these undermethylators, it's not per se a production problem. It's a problem with not being able to actually get the serotonin actually into the synapse to, as you would say, turn on the ignition. Is that, which is presumably, which is why those who are under methylators tend to be tend to be and you correct me if I'm wrong hyper responders to SSRIs because in a sense arguably you're getting to the root of the cause which is the lack of serotonin being able to just remain in the synapse where perhaps a non under methylator or over methylator sort of does naturally right like when serotonin's needed it's in the synapse when it's not it escapes and they're good so you're almost arguably bringing them to balance in a sense in a pharma pharmacological way that's accurate okay that is all right so that was a great excellent synopsis of ssris and kind of the physiology of, of all that so i wanted to now kind of go back now that this is going to make a bit more sense to the listeners with folate we had spoken about folate and folic acid but I've heard Dr. William Walsh, uh, one of the few doctors who have spoken about folate being a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer. And I would think with overmethylators, it's my understanding that they respond well to folate because perhaps there's too much activity, too much serotonin in the synapse. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, which is why perhaps folate works well for them, but would be disastrous for a person who's an undermethylator. Now, ha have I gone wrong there? Or is that pretty accurate? Nope. You heard uh, Dr. Walsh very correctly. Dr. Walsh being my mentor. Yeah, he's the man, as they say. 
Yeah, this is not very. This is not widely known and rarely ever spoken about because folate is giving out, given out kind of like skittles to anyone who shows up as someone who's an undermethylator, whether it be because they have some kind of a random like one snip, one standalone snip that some doctor tells them you are now an undermethylator, take folate. So this could really be a problem for a great deal of people. I think you and he have spoken about 22% of the population, according to your data, are undermethylators, which means 22% of people who take methylfolate could wind up in a world of hurt with an exacerbation of mental issues. Is that pretty accurate? It's a much higher percentage. Did you say 22%? 22% are undermethylators. Is that not is that not accurate? No. The vast majority of people with mental health challenges are actually undermethylated. That number is more. No, than I just 60%. mean I, I mean across the population at large. So for every hundred people, twenty oh, percent okay. of them are. So really, it's more like thirty-five or so. Thirty-five percent are undermethylated. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a huge number. Okay. Right. And the minority are overmethylators. It was like an old interview where I heard him said his data was 22% were undermethylators, 8% were over, and that combined 30%, and then the rest being 70. Now let's talk about that. Timing is key. Yeah. Because when Dr. Walsh was doing that work back then, that was before the huge boom and ongoing use of folic acid during pregnancy. Mm, okay. The time, the period that you're referring to predates the increase or the rise in autism and predates the rise in ADHD, both of which are undermethylated conditions. Mm. And what we talked to Dr. Walsh about was the fact that in medicine, we've been prescribing folic acid beyond the first trimester. The first trimester, it's absolutely necessary to make sure organogenesis happens so that we don't have neural tube defects and things like that. But after the first trimester, it's not necessary. But we immortally wise physicians and scientists decided, well, if a little bit is good, then more must be better and longer. Use it. Even even for an over, even an overmethylator who does well on folic acid and folate, you still feel that after the first trimester in a pregnant woman that they should steer away from something that if they weren't pregnant, they would do well on? Absolutely. And here's okay. the key. We don't know the methylation status of the baby. Ooh, fair. Ooh, that's, wow, that's interesting. Wow. The developing fetus, remember methylation, that's why I said earlier, methylation comes from two family lineages. You don't know what this child is going to choose at its moment of conception. It hmm. is a mystery. Overmethylated children come from somewhere. Mom is oftentimes undermethylated, carrying an overmethylated, developing infant. I never even considered that. So, if a physician prescribes methylfolate after the first trimester, if that mother is an overmethylator, she'll do well. But there is a potential, a potential for that growing fetus to actually do poorly, and it might cause some adverse. Reactions would would that then mean that it could potentially even cause some defects while trying to actually protect against them? There's no question. If you look at the analyses globally, what we have seen is a rise, and let's just talk about autism. Yeah, a rise in autism has been seen along the same slope and the same timing as our increased use in folic acid. Okay, during pregnancy for prolonged periods. Same for ADHD. Both are undermethylated conditions. 
Now, you're a younger person, but I can tell you when we were growing up, we never even heard of ADHD nor autism. Okay. And those were the days when buying folic acid was used for only the first trimester that you stop. See, folic acid at the level of DNA is a demethylating agent. Mm-hmm. And this is the key piece that many doctors and scientists still don't understand. So acid is like the Black Widow from the Avengers movies. It's a double agent. In the cytoplasm, it is a great methylating agent in the cytoplasm. But then it goes to the nucleus of the cell, and it demethylates. It demethylates the nucleus. And that's where all your instructions are coming from. So now you can take a child that may have been normal in methylation at that early instant, Give it ongoing nine months of, of uh, folic acid and then beyond while the mother's breastfeeding. And you functionally demethylate that child. When Dr. Abram Hoffer, a great colleague of our, I will call him our biochemical grandfather, uh, Carl Pfeiffer, who is Dr. Walsh's mentor. When Dr. Abram Hoffer was doing his work with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, he had tremendous use and tremendous um, benefit because there were a significant number of people who were over-methylated, mm. and his therapies work well for over-methylation, such that even the whole idea of high levels of dopamine being present and dopamine activity meant that niacinamide could be a good functional utility for treating individuals with schizophrenia or bipolar. And here's the thing. Many of the medications that we have today, our pharmaceutical medications that we have for these conditions, schizophrenia and bipolar, were based upon a lot of the work that actually stemmed from Abram Hoffer's work, okay? Wow, but when yeah. we began to now use these demethylating agents, the vast majority, it is hard to find an overmethylated schizophrenic these days. Over 75% of them are under-methylated. Now, why am I saying that? Because, Dove, the statistics that started this whole conversation off, about 20% and, and 8%, okay, in the general population, those are old. Hmm. They're old, even by way of what Dr. Walsh was saying, primarily because of the time period when they were discovered. We've been using so much folic acid. Now, look at look at your bread. You're rich in fortified bread. You're rich in fortified cereals. You're rich in fortified orange juice and milk. These things have folic acid. They are on the label. Look at them. So we're being bombarded with folic acid. So we've turned our previous population numbers. Basically, we've caused an epigenetic alteration by flooding the body with nutrients or anti-nutrients, you could argue, that we don't need, shouldn't have, because they're not catered to the individual's biochemistry. And then so it's almost skewing the numbers that would otherwise naturally be the case, which would be 22 and 8 and 70. And now it's like completely altered. That's a problem. Wow. Well said. That is exactly problem this is the problem we're so smart we become dumb really quickly because we do dumb things we think we're smart and then we we, we think we could sort of manipulate the system without knowing all the facts without looking at it from like a ten thousand foot view we kind of myopically focus on one thing and end up doing damage so so with that said just out of curiosity so with this growing fetus if that fetus ends up being a child that would do well on folate then it might actually be an enhancement, but it's not really worth the risk because there's no way. We're not there scientifically to know the child's methylation status, so you're sort of better off playing it safe by 
avoiding folate for the second and third trimester. Is that essentially how that works? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even studies by Johns Hopkins, I believe it was Johns Hopkins a few years ago, pointed to the fact that folic acid may be a cause of autism. It's in an actual study that they did. That was really good. Yeah. So I, I wanted to now shift to actually to talk about folic acid. So a lot of people have concerns that because of how well folic acid is absorbed, that it ends up building up into the bloodstream, leading to the blocking of the actual folate receptor. Not to mention that many people also have issues converting folic acid into the active methylfolate. So with that said, do you share you know some of the same concerns with the use of folic acid? Like I know Dr. Ben Lynch has sort of led the crusade on, I guess you could call it like anti-folic acid movement, if you will. And I get the rationale behind that because why take something that's upstream when you could take the final product, which is methylfolate. And again, the blocking of the receptor, you know, I'm sure you've done, you know, serum levels of folate and some people, it's just, it's so high, it's actually unbelievable. And you could argue because the absorption is so great, all that flood of folic acid is would block the receptor. It just makes logical sense. So what are your thoughts on steering away from folic acid, especially in those individuals when arguably we have something more effective and the end product, which is the methylfolate? Okay. Well, first of all, and I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just, you know, I'm just getting your opinion. Well, I'm going to give you the facts. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I don't mince words. The whole concept of methylated folate is actually inappropriately in incorrect okay methylated folate people don't understand how this works methylated folate for the millions of times this cycle spins it is useful one time out of that million and then it ceases to function okay mm -hmm. so methylated folate as a molecule itself there is no expectation around correction or improvement of any condition because it doesn't work. All right. That's number one. Now, let's say, fine, Mensa doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. I don't know where he gets that stuff. Listen, the people who came up with this whole methylated folate product hadn't even heard of methylation until Dr. Walsh brought it to their attention back in 1999, 1998 at a think tank session for autism. Yeah. Autism. And when they began doing their work, their research that came up with this, he told them, you're moving in the wrong direction. Now, these people had just heard about it. Walsh and his people had been working on methylation for over 30 years before that. Okay. So when you look at the originators, the people who, who have seen the millions of folks and done the studies and so forth, and they're telling you through experience that this is working in the wrong direction or it doesn't work, you have to listen. Well, these folks didn't, but it became highly popularized. And then genetic testing became highly popularized around this. And so the whole methylated folate craze began. But let's stop for a moment and just think logically, okay? How do you build a product that has both methyl and folate? Now you don't realize, you don't know that folic acid is a demethylating agent in the nucleus of the cell. But now you're giving both a methyl and an antimethyl at the same time. Does that make any sense? How does that product supposed to work? How is it supposed to work? It doesn't. Okay, let's look clinically. Let's say Mensa doesn't know what he's talking about, whatever have you, I, I follow this guy, I don't care who you follow, ask yourself a question. If you actually have, in mental health, by the way, if you have a mental health challenge like anxiety and depression and you're taking this methylated folate, do you get better? 
the vast majority of people, and I mean greater than 85%, report actually staying the same or doing worse, not getting better. Mm. Okay? So you can believe, I always go by this, listen, I don't care what your theory is. If people get better, so be it. Right. But if you're not getting the results and your science is not correct, then there's a problem here that's bigger. Wouldn't the argument be the reason why they're not getting better is because they don't need either folic acid or methylfolate because if they're an, a depressive who is an undermethylator, that is not a nutrient that they need, especially in excess of, that it's not necessarily the folate, but either folic acid that, or methylfolate. That is correct. There's a tremendous point to that, absolutely. But even when you're dealing with an overmethylated individual, the methylated version of folic acid, methylated folate is not the better form. The better form is actually the folate, folinic, or folic acid. Okay, okay I, I gotcha. So you've seen clinically with over-methylated people that methylfolate, they're, they're basically, they end up having like a neutral response and folic no, acid, that, folinic acid, they have a good response. Correct. To okay. be fair, there is some benefit for some of these folks with methylfolate, but that's because the folate is overriding the methyl. You don't need the methyl part, okay, in these folks who are over-methylated. That's not the best form to take, okay? Okay. So just on, on that level. That makes sense. Do you feel the same way about methylcobalamin B12 versus cyanocobalamin? Do you think, or... Oh, no, no, no. Those are totally different issues. Okay. Totally different. Okay. Um, now, the, if you're referring to methylation, um, every person's chemistry, as we test first, determines which version of cobalamin or vitamin B12 that we use. So if you're normal, as you said, most of the population, you said this correctly, most of the population on this planet is normal in methylation, okay, mm. most of So for them, they need a cyanocobalamin. They don't need a, a, a methylcobalamin. Um, they can use the regular, lovely, generalized cyanocobalamin. Individuals who are under-methylated with a mental health challenge, I don't like using that term, but that makes it easy, um, with a mental health challenge, then they should be using, yes, a methylated vitamin B12, okay? A methylcobalamin, okay? Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the good general form is okay. So the vast majority of the population doesn't need a methylated uh, B12, they just need a regular cyanocobalamin, and they're fine. Gotcha. And so with undermethylators and overmethylators, there's this clear sort of binary delineation where one should and one shouldn't. But with B12, it's a little bit more nuanced, would you say, in terms of over and undermethylators? It's not, you don't have to steer away from it. You should take it. It's just a matter of which one based on whatever your type is. Is that... And Let's not forget the third version. There's also hydroxycobalamin, right? Okay, which is is pretty much just fine. Um, it can go either way. And and what folks don't realize, and I'll just share for a moment, these guys all sit in different places in the production pathway that gets right. you to your goal. Okay, so eventually, once they get inside the cell, they all interconvert like transformers. Okay, coming together. Gotcha. Um, the appropriate piece that you need. Now, almost any of them will get you where you need to go eventually. But for an undermethylated person, the methyl B12 is the fastest and most appropriate way to go. 
and it provides that little extra methane. Now, right. hydroxy and cyanocobalamin, yes, they could be used, but hydroxy is going to take you the longest. It's got to be transformed into this product and that product and that product, crossover, transforming gear, before it gets you to where you need to be. Well, that about does it for part one of my three-part series with Dr. Mensa. Now, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And if you did, stay tuned for part two, which I'll be releasing next week, where I'll continue right where we left off and all things methylation. Also, don't forget to follow the show by hitting the plus sign at the top of the podcast page. And also, leave me a review and let me know what you thought of the show. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. And until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guests' qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.